I started out heavily as a reporting preacher. And over time was like, this is not healthy. People don't care about all of this. What the people want to know is, what does this have to do with what's going on in my life right now? And how can I move as a result of what this text is saying right now? This is Journalists Advancing Ministry, a new multimedia podcast about media professionals called to kingdom work. We explore their path to ministry from media and ask the question, are journalists particularly suited for this? I'm your host, Yvette Walker, a former full-time journalist. Join me as we talk to reporters, editors, and other journalists who've answered the call of ministry. In episode two, we talk to our first journalist, a former reporter named Mashawn Simon. Mashawn has written for NBC News, magazines, newspapers, in particular the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and others. But his call toward ministry was stronger than his call to stay in the newsroom. Let's hear from Mashawn, who tells us why. Hi, Mashawn. You're a favorite face, a welcome (laughs) face to my podcast, but this is a different podcast. Mm -hmm. And I'm so happy to have you come back and talk about this new area that we're going into, and that's journalism and ministry. And so thank you so much for coming on the show today. It is my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. Well, you have not. You and I have known each other for a while. Um, I mean, and and again, a lot of it's long distance. A lot of it's virtual. Mm-hmm. Um, but we came into contact with each other many, many years ago when you were still, I think, in college. You were interning mm-hmm. um, at a magazine, and we'll get into that in a minute. Um, but you now have moved into ministry, and that's really what this podcast is all about, yeah. or in some area of it, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So I want to talk about that today, but I want to start off asking you about your faith walk. So how okay. you, you know, as a child, or how you basically um, came to be a believer. Okay, sounds good. Um, yeah, so again, thanks for the opportunity. It is exciting to be talking to you again, and to be talking about this topic most specifically, um, because it is it is interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I say that partly because for a long time, I felt like I might have been like the only one or one of few who were sort of making this transition. But like you said, it's been, there has been a number, there have been a number of journalists that have um, made the shift. Uh, I know one in particular who I am in um, a doctor of ministry with. Uh, her name is Garland Davis, who is a former journalist. Uh, and then there's another woman who comes to mind, but her name escapes me, who was pastoring a United Methodist Church in Florida. And so, and I know she's a former journalist. So yeah, this this is an interesting transition. But my faith walk, I I like to say that I did not grow up in church because I really didn't. Um, for a lot of different reasons and factors that really had nothing to do with me, but had a lot to do with um, just sort of some family baggage. Um, so my people are deeply ingrained in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Um, I have learned in the past five or six years that there are at least three AME churches in the metropolitan Atlanta area that are like the Simon family churches. Wow. Um, and I sort of came through one of them um, just before I became a teenager. Um, so there was 
Greta Smith Chapel AME Church in Edgewood, um, Antioch um, AME here in Stone Mountain, which is not far from where I live now. And then there was another church in Conyers, which name escapes me. Um, but the church that I attended as a kid, my great aunt, my father's aunt, was uh, the church secretary. Um, on the side of the church building, there is a slab of concrete that has the church officers. And my great aunt, Clevia Park's name is engraved on the side of the church. And wow. so I, my family is deeply ingrained in the Amory Church. My father, my father's father, um, and several others were eulogized at Snow Chapel. Like it is one of the family churches, but I didn't grow up there. I didn't hmm. start out there. Um, I started going to church with some friends from school, um, a Church of Christ church um, on the west side of Atlanta. And then from there, eventually started going to the family church with my father and my mother. But faith or religion sort of always, uh it always hovered over me and around me so i grew up in a household that was very much influenced by church or influenced by faith there were things like i couldn't listen to certain music um i couldn't do certain things like get ear pierced things i couldn't we couldn't get tattoos we there were a whole lot of things we could not do because of these religious influences that hovered around us um, and so I grew up, for the most part, with this mindset of this is what church was because of all the things we were told not to do. All the don'ts. All the don'ts. Yeah. And somewhere around 11 or 12, we started going to the family church. And it was then that I began to recognize it to a certain extent as more like a community center, a place where we could come together and fellowship. But I can't really say that I paid much attention to what was being preached. Um, <laughs> I, I, I do remember, again, the don'ts. I do remember the sermons across the pulpit as it pertained to sexuality and sexual identity. Um, I remember the messages as it pertained to um, Jesus says to come as you are. But then at the same time, there are all these other things that you aren't supposed to do. Um, and so my stepping into ministry was very unexpected because I didn't really start going to church until I was like 11. Uh, and then I spent a lot of time there between 11 and 16. And then I left again after I came out. So I also identify as same gender loving or black, gay, or queer. Uh, and so I didn't really, so to, you know, to be in ministry now was never really this thing that was expected. However, there came a time, I think I was around like 15 or 16, just before I came out, where there were certain people around me who, um, and the memory is coming back to me now, um, some of my peers who, you know, would refer to me in a way that made me think they saw me as like, a ministerial figure. Mm -hmm. um, and since then, as we sort of reflect now, what, some 20, 30 years later, there have been several of them who have said, you know, we're not surprised that you ended up in ministry. Um, Isn't that because, interesting? Because of just how you carried yourself when we were teenagers. But it was never something that I really, really, I didn't grow up 
I didn't grow up, grow up in the church, but okay. I went to church a lot, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So mid to late teens, you come out and you move away from the church at that time. At yeah. the same time, you're, you know, ending high school, beginning to go to college and yeah. you, do you major in journalism or do you major in English or communication or something like that? I majored in professional writing initially. Okay. With a minor in sociology. And then I majored in communications um, with a minor in sociology. And what college was that? So I got my associate degree from Georgia Perimeter College. Mm -hmm. And I got my bachelor's from Kennesaw State University. Okay. So as most, you know, people who are interested in going into this field, uh, you start looking around for opportunities, internships, things like that. Um, And you had, you had a very famous one because you ended up writing about it and talking about it. Um, And that was your internship at Black Enterprise Magazine. It was a summer internship. But I'm sure, were there other internships as well? Yes. So I started in high school writing for a teen publication in the metro area called Vox, V-O-X, Youth Communication. Um, And from Vox, I did an internship at the Island Packet um, in Hilton Head, South Carolina. And then I did one at the Herald in Rock Hill, South Carolina, before I ended up in New York at Black Enterprise. Okay. The Black, and I say the Black Enterprise internship was rather famous because of something, and we're not going to, we're not going to dwell on that, but because of something the uh, employers asked you to do, and that was cut your hair. Yes. And it was it was a time uh, it was during the time when um, natural hairstyles were beginning to beginning to be worn in newsrooms. Um, I think maybe Betty Doremus was the first one. I mean, I think she's the one that we all think of when we think about wearing braids in the newsroom. But you had dreadlocks and they asked you to cut them and you did cut them and people got on you about that. And so, again, we're not going to dwell on that. But that was kind of. (laughs) Uh, that was kind of um, a time when a lot of people came to know you yeah. because of that. And I'm wondering, that had to be a stressful summer. I know you told me that you that you said, hey, I need the experience, so I'm going to cut them. I'll do what mm-hmm. I have to do. Yeah. But still, was that a stressful summer? And did you turn to God at all during that whole experience? It was a stressful summer. Uh, did I turn to God? That's a really good question because I don't know if at that time I was in the space. So, hmm, yes and no. Okay. Yes, in the sense that this memory, so I had several stressful summers, like every internship, I had some form of stress in one way or another. And I do remember sort of being in this space of, like the way in which I pray, I don't, I don't do, you know, a lot of people, when they talk about prayer, they talk about getting on your knees. They're being like this concentrated time for prayer and just like petitioning to God and tearing um, on your knees. I don't do that. Um, for me, it's very much a conversation in a way in you, in a way in which you and I are conversing. Um, so if a situation is occurring, like, Earlier today, we had some drama because we're supposed to be having some doors installed here at the house. And it was very stressful because we've had a very stressful week. And I just remember sort of sitting on my steps and just being like, God, help me in this moment. 
And so I know I've always done that. Like I've always stopped what I was doing, stilled myself and just sort of been like, God, I need you or God help me or God, I love you or give me direction and then just sort of moved on. And so to that extent, yes, when the drama was going on at Black Enterprise, it 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 shifted perspectives for me because I did not know to want for to, for one that people were paying that much attention to me. Um, granted, I sat on the board of the National Association of Black Journalists as a student rep. Yeah, as the first openly gay student rep, all of that. But I still didn't really connect to the fact that people were paying attention to the things I was or was not doing or the choices I was making. And let's point out, you are you are a young person. I think a lot of people don't understand that when we're people who are going through internships or participating, as you said, on board. I mean, these are young people. That is um, that's a lot for a young person to take on. So you're mm-hmm. like, what, 20 at the time? 20? I was 20, 19, 21, I was, maybe? I was drinking age. Yeah. OK. OK. Yeah, I was drinking age. <laughs> OK. And I remember because I had a lot of drinks. So I was drinking age. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I was pretty young and pretty new into my career and sort of also just oblivious to what authority or, um, uh, for, for lack of a better phrase, platform that I had at the time. And so it was pretty stressful and it it took some adjusting. It took a lot of adjusting at that point in time. And at the same time, um, I just wanted to do what I came there to do. And so I didn't want to give a whole lot. I mean, it was a it was a messed up situation, don't get me wrong. But I just wanted to do what I came there to do and not be made a, a poster boy um, for other people's agendas. And so I was getting both of those pressures. Um, the situation that to some extent felt unfair, but I recognized to some extent these are sometimes the choices that have to be made. And at the same time, I didn't want everybody's um, bullhorns to be placed in my face and on my shoulders and around my head to make a point around all of that. Yeah. But did I know that 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 would sort of also lead into, because that's what ministry also is. Mm. And I didn't know then that that experience was preparing me for now. Wow. Okay. So, uh, so after, so you graduated. We had that internship and graduated. What happened next? Where, where did you work next in journalism? So, at the time that I was at Black Enterprise, I was was I finishing my associate's degree, or had I even? I took a pause from school to work for a little while. And so I want to say, no, um, I had finished my associate's degree because just before I ended up at Black Enterprise, I was working for the mayor of Atlanta, Mayor Shirley Franklin, in her communications office. So after the Black Enterprise internship, I came back to Atlanta, interviewed for the Atlanta Press Club, and then went on to finish my bachelor's at Kennesaw State. Um, and I did that in like a year and a half. Um, at the same time, that is when the call started, um, the, the whisper of the call started manifesting itself around me. Um, and so I started going to 
um, a couple of churches here in the Atlanta area. Um, one, um, and what is known as an affirming church. Um, it was a, it was a very quickly growing church here in Atlanta where I had become pretty close to one of the executive pastors there. So we were inseparable. We were like best friends. And I like to say that he was um, coming to grips with his sexual identity um, because at the time he was an in, in the closet black gay man. Um, so as I mentored him out of the closet, he mentored me into ministry. Wow. Um, and so ministry started happening not long after that to when it came time to graduate with my bachelor's, I landed an internship at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution here locally. Sorry about all this background noise. Um, <laughs> at the Atlanta, Atlanta Journal-Constitution locally. And it was there that I answered my call. Um, it was there that things just kept happening um, they kept sending me on stories that I just really wasn't happy about or excited about. Um, conversations kept happening around me in the church space. Um, people kept saying things that I was just really fighting against. And I remember vividly, it was in the spring. Um, it was April 2009. And I remember saying to someone I was dating at the time, that God, God's self, I said, I hear what the people are saying about me. I hear the ways in which people are calling me minister, bishop, you know, and I have life and death and the power. I hear all of it. But God, God's self is going to have to come to me and say, this is what I want of you. And this is what you are called to do. I said, it's the only way I will do what it is that everyone keeps saying I'm supposed to be doing. And the very next morning, <laughs> Um, in, in intercessory prayer at the church, as we were praying, two people stepped to me and said to me verbatim what I had said the night before. And I knew it was God. And I said, oh, okay. So this is what this is supposed to look like. Hmm. Noted. it. And so then I started processing what I needed to do. I left that church, went to another church and was sitting in a class, we were a uh, new members class, and we were talking about the importance of Jesus in the Bible. And the teacher had said, what is the most important thing about Jesus? And I had been wrestling with this already for, for weeks. Uh, I had visited another church and the preacher was talking about doing, it's the, re the fact that all of this stuff is so vivid in my mind, it's amazing. <laughs> um, the preacher was talking about doing an inventory of yourself. And I remember the way in which he kept talking about being like Jesus and this divinity and this perfection. And I shuffled in my seat the entire time. Like I was so uncomfortable that when I went to this new members class at this church, I had joined when the teacher asked the question, what's the most important thing about Jesus? I said, his humanity. And she said, you're right. You need to go to seminary. Um, and it started that process for me. Um, so wow. I, I enrolled at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University. I deferred mm -hmm. for a year to finish my fellowship with the Atlanta Journal Constitution. And in August of 2010, um, I started classes. So just in case there's people who 
are not from the journalism field or don't really know. So the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is a big newspaper in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. It's very well known. Uh, what was your beat? What was your focus uh, of reporting? So initially I got hired as an intern to work on the breaking news team. It was a time when they were transitioning from, the industry itself was changing. We were, we were going more digital, social media was a thing. So I got hired to be a part of the breaking news team exclusively for AJC.com. Um, and a part of that job was also tweeting. Um, so I was a breaking news reporter and manager of the social media or one of the managers of the social media account. And as a re- and that internship was only supposed to be for like seven and a half, eight weeks. Um, halfway through, they offered me an opportunity to stay on for a year. So like a almost like an emerging journalist fellowship. It wasn't exactly called that, but it's sort of pretty much what it was. And so I had the opportunity to stay with them for a year. I was in the newsroom the day Michael Jackson died. Like I remember that vividly. Yeah. Um, It was also part of the reason why I decided I no longer wanted to be a journalist. Um, Why? The sensationalism of it. And I felt like Mm. we were doing more damage than good. That's mm-hmm. really part of the reason why I went to seminary. Mm. Um, I felt like journalism and the kind of journalists, journalists that I wanted to be was not what I was seeing in the newsroom because it was all about clickbait, getting the story, getting the scoop, and not really caring much about how it was impacting people who were close to the story. Mm-hmm. And that just didn't sit right with me. Um, and so I wanted to have an impact in the world in such a way that I was doing more good than harm. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I left the AJC that June and I started school that August. Wow. Yeah. I can see what you mean um, because the greatest commandment seems to be at odds sometimes with what we're asked to do as journalists. Yeah, yeah. And although... There are the SPJ Code of Ethics. There are several newsrooms that have Code of Ethics that say that we should seek the truth. We should be honest. Mm -hmm. We should not. We should minimize harm to the people that we're reporting about. But sometimes the job itself is difficult. And if you are not skilled at this kind of work, you can you can cause some damage. You can cause some harm. Although I think that we don't want to do that, but that can happen. Yeah. So I can see what you mean by that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And every choice that I've made in my career, per se, since then has been connected to or tied to in what way are we uh, impacting the greater good? Uh, Even the writing that I continue to do, it's all about informing, educating, and highlighting um, and not sensationalism. Not, um, And I've made some slip-ups in the process as well. Like I remember uh, some years after I graduated from seminary, I was writing for NBC News and I wrote this story about um, the Black Lives Matter movement and how young people in the Black Lives Matter movement wanted nothing to do with the church. Um, and there were a lot of church people who were upset with me for writing that story yeah. um, for a lot of different reasons. And it really hurt my heart that they were so upset, one, because, again, I wanted to be the kind of writer that caused no harm. But two, 
I now am a part of this industry. I'm now part of the clergy society, if you will. And I have now created this level of frustration with the very people who, to some extent, were colleagues or soon to be colleagues um, and what kind of riff had that caused. But it also opened my eyes to um, sort of the, I'm going to say it this way, Um, church folk are really good at trying to put on a certain air or reputation that isn't always authentic. It isn't always true. And in the same way that journalism is supposed to always be about getting after the truth, ministry is as well. And sometimes it is necessary for those of us that are clergy members to be honest and authentic about the ways in which we have failed the very people we are called to, but a lot of us don't want to do that. It's, 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 it's hard to be authentic, even though you're supposed to be authentic. Um, and so I have rattled. <laughs> um, there are a lot of pulpits I'll never be invited to because of that. This thing. Yeah. Okay. So how was it going back to school? I mean, I've, I've thought about this. You know, you're going back to school. You are a student again. You are studying. But it is so much more than that because you are hopefully being fed into and you are learning more about your own personal relationship with the Lord. I mean, it's more than just getting that grade or getting a degree. So what was that like when you, when you decided to go to seminary? It depends upon the school you go to. Every school has its own identity. Mm -hmm. Every school has its own agenda. Um, I learned that very quickly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because I went to Candler, um, one of the premier schools in this country connected to Emory University. Um, it is part of the United Methodist Church and has some of the biggest names in theology. Teresa Fred Brown, who was the bandy chair of preaching, first Black woman um, to ever hold such a prestigious role. Um, Emmanuel Larte, who was one of the premier um, theologians as it pertains to pastoral care, pastoral theology, and, and differing cultures. I mean, he does a lot of work around um, Af- indigenous African cultures and, and pastoral care and healing. Um, um, Luther Smith, who is one of the premier um, Howard Thurman um, experts in this country. Like, I was learning from some of these amazing Black people um, and amazing theologians across the board. Um, at this premier institution. But I went in thinking that it was supposed to be almost like a glorified Bible study. And it was a lot more academic than that. Okay. Um, it, it was heavily academic, but at the same time doing a very real work around helping us to be as prepared as possible to be thinking preachers and thinking theologians. And so it was a mix between the academic and the um, practical, the the ministerial practice or ministerial praxis, if you will. Um, And so that worked for me because I was a journalist. I came in knowing you ask questions, you're a conspiracy theorist, you want to break everything down um, to get to the truth. But at the same time, struggle with what now do I do with this and how do I take this into the world? Because 
I now am in a privileged position. I am now being exposed to um, the history of the Christian church. I'm being exposed to this is how the sacred text came to be. Um, and this is why it came to be. I'm being exposed to um, the history of Black church and how the Black church became what it is, um, flaws and all. I'm being exposed to a lot of stuff that um, the average person would never be exposed to and the average person um, could never be exposed to because a lot of the people who were pastoring churches at the time that I was going through seminary had never been to seminary. Right. And they were just regurgitating the same messages that they hadn't heard and been growing up with. Um, and now I'm supposed to go out into the world and speak to the very same people who have been told the same stuff. So, yeah, it seminary, um, to a certain extent, the practice of seminary did not make me closer to God. Um, the experience of seminary is what made me closer to God um, because I ended up spending a lot more time with God talking to God about why did you bring me here? Um, one of the reasons why I went to seminary was because I wanted to prove God wrong. I did not believe and was not convinced that I was supposed to be doing ministry. Um, even, even, though, even though you had that moment. Though, yeah. Even okay. Though, even though, <laughs> Even though I went to seminary saying, okay, God, I hear you, and now I'm about to prove you wrong. Uh -huh. um, and it, the, the three years that I was in seminary only made um, the reality that I am called to ministry clearer. Um, whether or not I was called to pastoring was another question. Okay. But being called to ministry, I was I was more clear about than anything else at that time. But it was because of the experience, not because of what they were teaching me. Um, what they were teaching me was giving me foundation. What I was experiencing was causing me to interact with God more, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I remember on Facebook when you announced that you were going to Divinity School. And I remember when you said, it, it it is done. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Lord. <laughs> uh, to say that you know you have completed that, um, and that you were working at a church. I mean, it was just you know I was so proud of you. Oh, so tell you. tell us a little bit about your ministry CV. I guess you could say your <laughs> ministry resume. Where have you worked? And um, and then I want to ask you a question, maybe that only a pastor could answer about maybe journalism. But okay. tell, tell us first about where you worked and uh, what you've done there. So while in seminary, I wanted to be as prepared as possible for ministry. And so I got myself involved in ministerial practices. Um, so that's where the ministry CV begins. Um, while in seminary, I was a teaching assistant um, for intro to preaching courses. Um, one, because I felt as though in order to be a better preacher, uh, I needed to study it, but also help others because I realized I had a very critical ear. Um, Dr. Fred Brown, I, as part of our preaching courses, we used to sit in the room and after everyone preached, we had to give them a critique. And I would feel so guilty because I 
could hear what was wrong with their messages before I could hear what was right. Um, and so I told her one day, I was like, this experience makes me feel guilty every time we do it because I just feel entirely too critical. And she was like, mm-hmm, that's a good thing. That's what's going to make you better. Like, that's healthy. Um, and so becoming a teaching assistant helped to sharpen that. Um, so I did that. Um, I joined the worship team. So I helped plan worship services. Um, I led a very small team of about four or five people um, to plan, uh, I want to say, four to five services a semester. Hmm. Um, in addition to taking like liturgy courses on how to write um, prayers and all of that. Um, in addition, I spent an entire school year as a hospital chaplain. Um, and then I set, spent the next school year as a church intern, um, working in the back end of the church um, with um, finances, membership roles, planning services, um, leading worship, and preaching a couple of times. So that started, that sort of began the CV. After I finished, I after I graduated from seminary, I had plans to move to Canada to do a master's and then a PhD in homiletics, which is the art of preaching. I wanted to study preaching more. And what ended up happening was life brought me back to Atlanta. Um, while I was making my way to Canada, I was stopped. I stopped in Nashville and I stopped in Chicago to visit friends. And while in Chicago, I found out that a dear friend of mine died. Um, I found out that my housing and financial aid fell through in Toronto. And I found out that the state of Georgia was suing me um, for overage and um, unemployment benefits. Um, and so I had to come back <laughs> to Atlanta. That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot. Um, not knowing that that would be, begin, begin the next leg of my ministry identity. And so while trying to figure out what the heck I was going to do with my life from like September to like February, um, I started attending uh, a small non-denominational Pentecostal leaning church called House of Mercy Everlasting um, in College Park, Georgia. It is there where I met my dear friend and pastor Pierre Cox um, and unofficially um, started the grooming process to lead his ministry. And so from then, which was November of 2013, until uh, Thanksgiving of 2019, um, I served in very different capacities. I led a preaching course there. Um, I began um, organizing and planning worship experiences at the church. Um, and in Thanksgiving of 2019, and in that time between 2013 and 2019, um, Pierre battled colorectal cancer. And so while he was in treatment, um, I served as the interim pastor. Um, and when he came back from his first set of treatment, he invited me to be his assistant pastor. I served in that role until the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and then 
took back over the church as he started declining from um, colorectal cancer, a blood infection, and um, full-blown AIDS. Mm. Um, He passed August of 2020. Um, I was named successor and pastor of the church in September of 2020. And I served in that role until February 4th of 2022 um, after my sabbatical ended, after my father passed. And it was after my father passed in October of 2021 where my heart for ministry shifted, um, but also my commitment to myself shifted. And what I realized was I did not do a good job of grieving after Pierre passed. Yeah. I was so committed to making the church continue and giving them the breaks that they needed, the leaders, the members, um, his spouse, that I never really grieved. And so when my father passed, I saw myself doing some of the same stuff again. Yeah. And I was like, I can't, I can't keep doing this. Um, if I keep doing this, it's going to destroy me. I had had some health challenges in the midst of that. Um, issues with my own colon that I never knew anything about. Um, my spouse caught COVID. I caught COVID. It was just, um, and so January of 2021, I decided in January of 2022, I decided that what was best for me was to no longer pastor, pull back, um, and take some time to myself and then rethink um, what ministry looked like for me. At the same time, <laughs> I am two years into a four-year doctor of ministry program where I am studying grief and pastoral theology. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's my ministry CV in one way or another. So, so hold on. So when did you start that doctoral program? I started the D-Man four weeks after Pierre died. Okay. All right. That makes yeah. perfect sense. Yeah. 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 I saw that four weeks after Pierre died. Okay. Wow. And so do you see yourself going into this area yeah. of a pastoral and, and, and grief area in ministry? Yeah. Grief and pastoral theology. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly someone who has been through it can, can understand better what other people feel mm-hmm. and yeah. also, um, and, you know, and, and just be that light and encouragement to them. So, yeah, yeah no, that's great. That's great. Yeah, thank you. So my question to you is this. So you mentioned that the day Michael Jackson died and you saw the coverage and just the craziness of that kind of, you know, gave you a bad taste for journalism. Um, when you see coverage of church scandals today as a pastor, mm-hmm. And I'm and the big, the newest and biggest one now is Hillsong. Mm-hmm. Um, what does it does it bring you back, or do you, do you do you want to get in there and show them how to cover this story? I mean, how do you feel about and and Hillsong certainly is not the only church scandal um, that we have seen or will see. But as do you have any still any of those journalism chops that make you think about hmm? I don't, I, number one, I don't like the way they're doing it or they're doing a good job. Neither. <laughs> <laughs> Neither. Um, when it, so there's a point, there's someone in me 
there's 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 a part of me that is like a um what's the word I'm looking for? A fledgling documentarian. Okay. Watching all those Netflix documentaries, are you? I it's terrible. <laughs> it's I am in the rabbit hole of documentaries right now. I mean uh-huh. in all of them, like the summer of the what do they call it? The, the, the summer of scams, where it was like um Fire Island. Oh yeah. Um, uh-huh. um Anna Delvey, like that whole summer, all mm-hmm. the shows that are coming out as a result mm-hmm. of that, mm-hmm. I'm deep into like I'm watching the shows, I'm listening to the podcast, I'm going back and reading the stories. Like it that's the journalist in me. Yeah. Um, of just like soaking up and soaking up and soaking up and then determining from there um the balance, how balanced or how imbalanced it is. So seeing these stories, the Hillsong and how all the other scandals are coming out, it, it doesn't make me uncomfortable. Um, because one, I understand what journalism is doing mm-hmm. um, or what journalism does. And a lot of times these scandals help these publications. I'll say it this way. I learned a long time to always consider the source. Yes. And so when I'm seeing these stories, um, seeing these documentaries, I'm always thinking about who is writing it, who is reporting it, what is their agenda? Um, and because I know that, then it allows me to hear it, see it, or read it in a certain kind of way, um, and then dissect however I need to dissect. And what what I'm convinced of is, for the most part, they're all doing a pretty good job. Um, they're, they're giving you the stuff of it. Um, they're talking to a good amount of people. Um, there are some issues, there are some, some moments where it's like, okay, you, that really had nothing to do with it. You're, you're sort of going too far. Yeah. But I also understand why you're going as far as you're going. Um, what it also does for me though, is it does make me a little concerned because I recognize that everybody doesn't, um, is that old saying, um, um, eat the meat and spit out the bones. Um, everybody doesn't know how to spit out the bones. Um, and there are some people who actually like the bones. Yeah. Um, and will break that bone open and suck out the marrow. And so I recognize that sometimes publications, institutions are really just giving the people what the people think they want um, to serve a certain purpose, to keep their attention. But church does that too. And there are preachers who do that every Sunday morning. Um, And so journalism isn't doing anything different than some of the average preachers are doing. There's an agenda behind the preaching. There's an interpretation to the text that sometimes isn't always right. Um, And there's a lean, there's a theology that every preacher brings to the preaching moment um, that, that causes people to lean one way or another. So my commitment has always been not to critiquing the publications or critiquing the preachers or trying to call them out. It's to talking to the people that are listening and give them a different option. Um, What I began to realize about journalism and about the church is that we don't give people permission to think for themselves or to figure it out on their own. 
um, we try to tell them what is and make them believe that that's what it is. When in reality, what we really should be doing is saying, this is our perspective. You do with it what you will. And that's also the kind of, that's the way I preach. So journalism isn't doing anything different than the church is doing. Um, and so I just sort of, I'm just sort of like, I'm going to stay out of it because I'm too close to both of them. But this is what I would do to those that want to listen. And then they do with it what they will based off of whatever relationship they have with whoever they call the creator. Okay. I know a, a former journalist who became a deacon and he was still working, you know, in journalism as he was mm-hmm. going through this. And whenever I would hear his sermons, I, you know, they were, they were, they were great. They had a great message, but they were very reported. Mm-hmm. They were very, carefully worded interesting mm-hmm. you know so mm-hmm. you know you said that uh in in school in in uh in seminary you did uh, kind of focus on um on on preaching and and mm-hmm. this and it would would sermon writing also come into that as well in homiletics mm-hmm. okay I mean, yeah homiletics, homiletics is the art of preaching okay yeah so do you pull did you and do you pull from those communication journalism skills yep. when you are writing your sermon. Yeah. I am a I am a full manuscript preacher. Um one of the things that benefited me in seminary was that I am as strong of a writer as I am. Um there are a lot of my classmates who hated the writing aspect. The writing part was the easiest part. Um the hardest part was the interpretive part. Um because I would approach it as a reporter, I would approach it as, okay, what's the story? And then how do I lay it out? But, and so taking the preaching courses, but also watching other preachers mm-hmm. help me to figure out my preaching identity, my preaching, my, 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 my homiletical identity, which is my performative aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, and how that lines up with the hermeneutics of it or the interpretation of it. Um, It was difficult. And sometimes it is still very difficult. Um, I just preached um, this past weekend in Orlando as a part of this event called Big Boy Pride. Um, And uh, I spent weeks working on this sermon, weeks (laughs) working on this sermon. And got up to preach and halfway through was like, this is entirely too long. Mm-hmm. And so then I had to pivot on my feet. But because I had had those training experiences, yes. I could then say, okay, I'm going to go this way with the manuscript or I'm going to skip over this whole section or this doesn't really matter. Um, it also helps you to understand how people pay attention. Um, and so I appreciate the classes then because people's attention span is very short. As you can, as you know, and as you can tell, I can be really long-winded. It's just, <laughs> it's just, it's just what it is. Um, but people don't, people aren't always taking everything in. Um, so while I may think it's really important information, um, I can dissect a text. I can read in between the lines of a text really well. Mm-hmm. I may not always tell you what the text is about, but I can tell you what's happening in the text really, really well. Um, And then parallel that to what's happening in life. Um, But I have to figure out ways to make it interesting, one. And two, um, 
make it enjoyable. Um, and so periodically I'll drop a, a joke in my message because I'm fully aware I've spent all this time reporting. I spent all this time explaining and the people are glossing over. Um, so yeah, I started out heavily as a reporting preacher and over time was like, this is not healthy. People don't care about all of this. Yeah. What the people want to know is, what does this have to do with what's going on in my life right now? Yeah. Um, and how can I move as a result of what this text is saying right now? Um, so I had to figure out how to throw jokes in there and um, use my own story or use stories of other people I knew about or pull in stories from the media or just life in general. Um, and parallel that in a way that people can sort of dig in and I can keep their attention. So there might be someone listening or watching, uh, journalist or no, and they're like, I just, you know, I'm not sure. Is Are there any sources that you would suggest that they reach out to, look at? Um, if they are thinking about either going back to school or just trying to decide, could ministry be for them? It's hmm. a good question. Uh, there was a book um, by Renita J. Weems, W-E-E-M-S, Renita, R-E-N-I-T-A, called Listening for God. Listening for God. I became introduced to this book maybe my second year of seminary. And I graduated from seminary in 2013. I'm coming up on, I'm coming up on 10 years. Uh, wow. Since I graduated yes. from seminary. Thank you, Jesus. That's crazy. Anyway, in that time, I have maybe read this book three or four times. I, I don't even remember how many times I read this book. But the book is so amazing because in a lot of ways, it's like Dr. Weems is... Um, memoir of like the experiences of her going through ministry, the moments when it feels like God isn't speaking, the moments when you feel all alone, the moments when you feel like, what the heck am I doing and why am I doing it? And the, the book is just so rich with this is what that is, or this is what it was like for me. You figure it out on your own. And, and it, it's, it is one of the jewels. Um, of anybody who has been in ministry. Um, one of the jewels for those of us that have been in ministry that have just sort of feel lost because we all go through a moment of feeling lost. Yeah. So I would suggest reading that book, but I would also suggest um, just really stopping to think about um, why are you sort of feeling like this is what you should be doing? Because you don't always have to do ministry. Um, and you don't always have to go to school to still be effective. Uh, one of the best examples that, that come up for me is George Stephanopoulos. Um, mm -hmm. He is the morning show host of Good Morning America. George mm -hmm. went to seminary. Um, he did, I think, a three-year program, got him a Master of Divinity. And then he ended up working in communications at the White House and now is 
co-host of Good Morning America. He did just uh, the opposite of what we're talking about. He did just the opposite. <laughs> um, but I, and I've never had a conversation with him about it. But my assumption is is that seminary helped clarify things for him. Um, so I say all that to say, like, all because he went to seminary didn't mean he ended up in ministry. Right. I, I know several people that went to seminary and are doing all the things they actually really want to do. One of my classmates is now a flight attendant. And, and it's just ha- the happiest he's ever been in his life as a flight attendant. Another one of my classmates um, worked in higher ed for years in student affairs after seminary. He was a chaplain at a school for many years and then was about to move to China to teach English um, at this college and said, I don't want to do any of that. I want to act. And is now doing theater. Um, <laughs> okay. And, and is the happiest he's ever been. Mm-hmm. And so seminary doesn't always mean you go into ministry. I'm no longer pastoring. Um, I figured out that pastoring the local church in a day-to-day capacity is not who I am. Um, I The kind of call I have is a little more global. It's a little more expanded. Um, I... I pastor people above and beyond just a local church experience. Like there are people who the big boy pride community call me pastor. They see me as their pastor. Um, And, but it took me a minute to come to grips with that. And so what we understand as ministry has changed and we get locked into this traditional concept of ministry for a lot of different reasons. And, And I think all of it is valid. But it does not, all because you may be feeling a call, does not necessarily mean that you're called to a church, does not necessarily mean that you need to go to school to get a degree, does not need to mean that you need to go into an organization and become ordained. You can do ministry in a lot of different ways, in a lot of different capacities. You just got to figure out where is it that God is exactly calling you to? And that's the most important piece. Um, Because at the root of it, it's about not doing harm and helping people get to their greatest capacity and their greatest ability above anything else. Wow. Well, thank you so much. This has been such an interesting and rich conversation. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate you spending the time. I appreciate the invitation. I hope some good came out of me running my mouth for all this time. So thank you. I appreciate it. 